Section 22 of Pitt by Archibald Primrose, Lord Rosebery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 15, Part 2, Character and Position of Pitt. His exercise of patronage has been attacked on another point. He is said to have advised the creation of too many peers. He did indeed ennoble with unsparing hands. During the first five years of his ministry, he bestowed 48 peerages. In two subsequent years, 1796 and 1797, he created and promoted 35, and when he resigned in 1801, he created or promoted 140. He nearly, in fact, doubled the peerage as it stood at the accession of George III. This profusion had the strange result that the Reform Bill of 1831 was, it is said, rejected by Mr. Pitt's peerage against those of older creation. Pitt had a triple reason for this excessive bounty. In the first place, the economic measure of reform in the civil list, which had been passed in 1782, had so crippled and confined the patronage of ministers that a profuse creation of peerages was almost the only resource of government as carried on in those days. But his own reductions of this kind were enormous and with this special distinction. Burke had reduced the patronage of the crown and of ministers. Pitt, as prime minister, labored faithfully and indefatigably to reduce his own. Between 1784 and 1799, he abolished 85 absolute sinecures in the customs with salaries of from £2,000 a year downwards. He collected a revenue of 12 millions with 747 fewer officials than it had taken under previous governments to collect a revenue of six. All this was done in the service of the public to make enemies for himself and diminish the opportunities of rewarding his followers and strengthening his government. Conduct of this kind was unique in those days and has not been too common since. He desired, secondly, to recruit and refresh the House by large additions from various classes, from the old landed gentry and the commercial banking aristocracy. And thirdly, it was necessary for the security of his own and any future governments to render impossible combinations of great peers to overset the government. He had to destroy the Whig oligarchy, which had so long wielded a perilous and selfish power. It was on this ground that he secured the cordial cooperation of the Crown in the creation of peers, though to the end of life he called himself a Whig, a term which it must be remembered was then the only one to describe every shade of what we call liberalism, the radicalism of Chatham or the selfish oligarchy of the revolution families. One thing more must be said on this head which is essential to a right understanding of the subject. The main reason which prevailed, consciously or unconsciously, with Pitt in his creation of peers was his disdain of the aristocracy. His sympathies, his views, his policy were all with those middle classes which then represented the idea of the people. By a strange accident, he became the leader of the nobility, 
but they supported him on their necks, for his foot was there. They were the puppets through which he conducted the administration of the country, but he scorned them and snubbed them and flooded their blue blood with a plentiful adulteration of an inferior element. Read, for example, the anguish of the Duke of Leeds under his treatment. Read his letters to the brother of Cornwallis and the son of Chichester, both noble bishops, discreetly ready for the enlargement of their spiritual opportunities. Pitt and the aristocracy had not an idea or a sentiment in common. His attitude to them resembled the earlier relations of the late Lord Beaconsfield to the magnates of the party. He was willing to give a peerage to any decent possessor of 10,000 a year. As for his baronets, their name was Legion, and his knights were as the sand of the sea. But he had no sympathy with their sympathies and regarded their aspirations with a sort of puzzled scorn. His mission to appease Buckingham when that potentate was raging over a distribution of garters from which he was excluded, must have been one of the most solemn farces on record, for he could not understand the feelings that he had to soothe. He considered the peers as his election agents, therefore the more the better, and as regards their further objects of promotion or decoration, he would, had he had the power, have satisfied them all. A minister of this temper may gratify, but he is not likely to strengthen an aristocracy. To estimate Pitt as a statesman, to sum up his career, to strike his account with history, one must take adequate means and scales. Jauntily to dismiss him as a superannuated prodigy, with an account of the reforms he projected and abandoned, with a summary record of his loans and gagging acts, with a severe gaze at the corruption of the Union and the horrors of the Irish Rebellion, with an oblique glance at port wine, to consider him a trained liberal who became one of the king's tools and then held power by prerogative in some form or another, to regard him as a man infirm of purpose and tenacious only of office, is to take a view justified by passages and aspects and incidents of his career but one neither adequate nor comprehensive. Men will long canvass his claims and merits as a minister, for the subject matter is so unparalleled. Lord Beaconsfield, for example, who delighted in political paradox, wrote a letter in 1873 to Sir William Harcourt, whose kindness affords me the opportunity of printing it, which contains his view of Pitt. I do not at all agree with you in your estimate of Pitt's career. It is the first half of it which I select as his title deed to be looked upon as a Tory minister. Hostility to borough-mongering, economy, French alliance, and commercial treaties, borrowed from the admirable negotiations of Utrecht, the latter half is pure Whiggism, close parliaments, war with France, national debt, and commercial restriction all prompted and inspired by the arch-Whig trumpeter, Mr. Burke. These sentences express perhaps rather the light scoff of a bantering spirit than the cold results of historical research. But they represent an opinion always worth reading, even when given partly in jest, and one which derives color from the confusion caused by the necessary change between Whiggism and Toryism before and after 
the sure establishment of the Protestant succession. The various classes of opinion have crystallized, roughly speaking, into two schools of thought. The first, the most common and the least informed, is that which honors Pitt as one who became prime minister at the age of an ensign, who achieved the union with Ireland, and who was the great antagonist of the French Revolution. The other, the more recent and scientific school, is that which severely divides the life of Pitt into two parts, the first embracing his administration up to 1793, which was entirely praiseworthy and which might from its character deserve the commendation of Peel or Cobden, the second the remainder which was entirely and conspicuously blameworthy. It may be permitted to hold aloof from both parties. The one does not sufficiently go into detail, the other draws a distinction which is not natural. If you take two portraits of a man, one at the age of three and the other at three score and ten, you will trace no resemblance whatever between the faces depicted, and yet the change from one to the other is so gradual that there is no one day of his life at which you could say that a man was unlike what he was the day before. As with the natural, so it is with the political man. A politician may make a sudden and complete retraction, and so abruptly change his historical aspect, just as an individual may meet with an accident that entirely changes his personal appearance. But putting such catastrophes on one side, it is not possible to draw a line across the life of a statesman, with the declaration that all is white on one side and all is black on the other. With Pitt, at any rate, it was the circumstances that changed and not the man. And the circumstances resolved themselves mainly into one, the French Revolution. No man can understand Pitt without saturating himself with the French Revolution and endeavoring to consider it as it must have seemed at its first appearance. In the first five years he had not to deal with it, and they were fruitful years for England. He found our average imports in 1784 £11,690,000. In 1793, they had risen by seven millions. In the same period, our exports of British merchandise had risen from 10 to 18 millions, and of foreign merchandise from 4,330,000 to 6,560,000 pounds. In December 1783, the 3% stood at 74. In 1792, they stood at over 96. But the new element clouded the whole firmament. It is safe to say that there was not a sane human being then living in Europe so exalted or so obscure or so dull as not to be affected by the French Revolution, except perhaps that traditional Marquis de L'Aigle, who snapped his fingers at it and went on hunting at Compiègne without interruption. Was it possible that Pitt, and Pitt alone, should remain heedless and insensible? Was it desirable? We are now able to fix epochs in the French Revolution, to fancy that we can measure its forces, to point out exactly what, in our philosophical opinions, might have modified or turned or arrested it, 
just as we calculate what would have happened if Hannibal had captured Rome, or as men of powerful imagination have composed eloquent dialogues showing what eminent personages would have said to each other had they happened to meet. It is all cut and dried, a delicate speculation of infinite science and interest, though critical minds may differ as to its value. But Pitt could only perceive the heavens darkened and the sound of a rushing mighty wind that filled all Europe. Seeing and hearing that, he formed perhaps a juster judgment than those who discussed the matter as an elegant question of political balance. He saw that uncontrolled, it was overwhelming, and he did not pause to reason as to what might be its eventual effect when another century had passed. An earthquake, or the movement of snows surcharged, or the overflow of some swollen river, may cause absolute ruin for the moment and great subsequent benefit. But the philosopher who is speculating on the fifth act will disappear in the first. Pitt faced the cataclysm and made everything subservient to the task of averting it. All reforms were put on one side till the barometer should rise to a more promising level. It is impossible, said Wyndham, to repair one's house in the hurricane season. It is impossible, it may be added, to put Pitt's French Revolution policy in a form more terse and more true. Many may profess to regret that we did not allow full play to the agitation, that we did not sit still to receive what should be prescribed from Paris. They may be right, but those may also be right who, without dogmatizing one way or the other, feel unable to estimate the result of the sudden flow of so fermenting a vintage into the venerable vessel of the British Constitution. It is probable that most people will think that Pitt was right in his forecast of the revolution and in his inability to accept it as a boon for a country of such different conditions. For there was no middle course. The revolution had to be accepted or repelled. But if his view be right, a large latitude must be given for his acts of repression and suspensions of habeas corpus. For the enemy he had to fight was as much subterranean as external. The French fought not less by emissaries than by armies, and so Pitt would say, if the thing had to be done at all, it had to be done with all possible might and main. There could be no refinement as to means, any more than in a storm with much mutiny on board. His case for his repressive acts depends on the reality and extent of the alleged conspiracy. It is common now to think that it was exaggerated. That is always the case with regard to such efforts when they have been baffled. It was so said in the case of Catiline, and so in the case of Thistlewood. What has been rendered abortive, it is common to think, would never have possessed vitality. But it must be remembered that what Pitt did was not a vain imagination of his own, but founded on the solemn, anxious inquisition and report of Parliament itself. It was Parliament that instructed the executive. It was Parliament that ordered repressive measures. It is impossible to carry the matter further than this, and there it must be left. Had he lived now, his career would, of course, have been different, 
instead of being a majestic and secluded figure, supreme in the House of Commons, and supported by the direct, incalculable influence of the crown, he must have looked outside to great democratic constituencies with his finger on their pulse. He would have addressed mass meetings all over the country. He must have lived not so much in Parliament as with the nation outside, and a nation vastly larger than that with which he had to deal. That, however, was not his position, or the position of any minister then, or for long afterwards. He had to deal with powers which we neither know nor understand. On the throne, an active and ardent politician, buying boroughs by the dozen and contributing £12,000 at each dissolution to the election fund of every minister whom he approved, besides what he might spend at by-elections, whose personal party in the House of Commons numbered perhaps a third of that assembly, and whose party in the House of Lords controlled that body. Secondly, he had to deal with the borough-mongers, who required to be fed as regularly as the lions at the tower. These are the vanished factors of government. But because he was supported by them, it is not to be supposed that he was not supported by the people. The people were then, politically speaking, the middle classes, and he was the man of the middle classes. When he took office, he did so by the act of the king, but the king was clearly the interpreter of the national will. The petitions, the municipal resolutions, the general election clearly proved this, and the nation seems, so far as we can judge by the limited but sole expressions of their will, by elections and by acclamations, to have followed Pitt to the end of his long administration. Wilkes, who was himself no bad test of popular feeling, followed him from the beginning. He had, it is true, the king and the aristocracy with him, but he truckled to neither the one nor the other. Indeed, it is one of his singular merits that he managed to combine into a solid array of support, king, lords, and people. But it is no real charge against him that he utilized as an aid the king and the aristocracy, for there was no possible government without them. Nor when the Whigs succeeded him did they dream of introducing any other system. They only complained that the king withheld his election contribution from them. It is perhaps unnecessary to say more of the circumstances and surroundings of Pitt, but it is impossible to complete any sketch of his career or indeed to form an adequate estimate of his character without setting him, if only for a moment, by the side of Chatham. Not merely are they father and son. Not merely are they the most conspicuous English ministers of the 18th century, but their characters illustrate each other and yet it is impossible for men to be more different. Pitt was endowed with mental powers of the first order. His readiness, his apprehension, his resource were extraordinary. The daily parliamentary demand on his brain and nerve power he met with serene and inexhaustible affluence. His industry, administrative activity, and public spirit were unrivaled. It was perhaps impossible to carry the force of sheer ability further. He was a portent. Chatham, in most of these respects, was inferior to his son. He was incalculable, sometimes sublime, 
sometimes impossible and sometimes insane, but he had genius. It was that fitful and undefinable inspiration that gave to his eloquence a piercing and terrible note, which no other English eloquence has touched, that made him the idol of his countrymen, though they could scarcely be said to have seen his face or heard his voice or read his speeches, that made him a watchword among those distant insurgents whose wish for independence he yet ardently opposed, that made each remotest soldier and bluejacket feel when he was in office that there was a man in Downing Street and a man whose eye penetrated everywhere, that made his name at once an inspiration and a dread, that cowed the tumultuous commons at his frown. Each pit possessed in an eminent degree the qualities which the other most lacked. One was formed by nature for peace, the other for war. Chatham could not have filled Pitt's place in the ten years which followed 1783, but from the time that war was declared, the guidance of Chatham would have been worth an army. No country could have too many pits. The more she has, the greater will she be. But no country could afford the costly and splendid luxury of many Chathams. To sum up, it is not claimed that Pitt was a perfect character or a perfect statesman. Such monsters do not exist. But it may be confidently asserted that few statesmen and few characters could bear so close a scrutiny. He erred, of course, but it is difficult to find any act of his career which cannot be justified by solid and in most cases by convincing reasons. It may be said that his party acted more on him than he on them, but the relations of a successful leader with his party are so subtle that it is difficult to distinguish how much he gives and how much he receives. It is no doubt true that the changed conditions of the world compelled him to give up his first task of educating his followers and to appeal rather to their natural instincts or prejudices. It may be alleged that he clung to office. This is said of every minister who remains long in power. Office is indeed an acquired taste, though by habit persons may learn to relish it, just as men learn to love absinthe or opium or cod liver oil. But the three years which Pitt spent out of place and almost out of Parliament seemed to have been the happiest of his life, and his resignation was generally condemned as groundless and wanton. It may, however, be conceded that unconsciously he may have become inured to office, and that, as leaving it implies at any rate a momentary defeat, he may have been unwilling to face this. Men who pine for unofficial repose dread the painful process of quitting office, the triumph of enemies and the discomfiture of friends and the wrench of habit, as men weary of life fear the actual process of death. It may also be said that though he generally saw what was right, he did not always ensue it. What minister has or can? He has to deal not with angels but with men with passions, prejudices, and interests, often sordid or misguided. He must, therefore, compromise the ideal, and do not the best, but the nearest practicable to the best. But let us remember what is indisputable. No one suspected his honesty. No one doubted his capacity. No one impeached his aims. 
He had, as Canning said, qualities rare in their separate excellence, wonderful in their combination, and these qualities were inspired by a single purpose. I am no worshipper of Mr. Pitt, said Wilberforce in the House of Commons, long after Pitt's death, but if I know anything of that great man, I am sure of this, that every other consideration was absorbed in one great ruling passion, the love of his country. It was this that sustained him through all, for he ruled during the convulsion of a new birth at the greatest epoch in history since the coming of Christ, and was on the whole not unequal to it. There let us leave him. Let others quarrel over the details. From the dead eighteenth century his figure still faces us with a majesty of loneliness and courage. There may have been men both abler and greater than he, though it is not easy to cite them. But in all history there is no more patriotic spirit, none more intrepid, and none more pure. End of section 22. Recording by Pamela Nagami in Encino, California, May 2016. End of Pitt by Archibald Primrose, Lord Rosebery.